You're listening to Guitars and Granola Bars, episode 23. Thank you so much for joining me here on Guitars and Granola Bars, Music Therapists Talk Parenthood. I'm your host, Rachel Rambach, and this podcast is for music therapists and anyone else balancing a passion-fueled career with being a parent. I'm changing things up big time for the month of June here on the podcast. In celebration of Father's Day, I'll be featuring four dads who are sharing their perspective on parenting and life as a music therapist. I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I have. This podcast is sponsored by Music Teachers Helper, the best way to manage your private music lesson studio and or music therapy practice. I've used Music Teachers Helper every single day since 2011, and it is one of the best tools I have to keep my private practice running smoothly. Music Teachers Helper is online scheduling and billing software, which you can access from your computer, laptop, tablet, and smartphone that saves you hours every month, enables you to generate reports for taxes, and ensures you never lose track of a payment. Once you add a student, which is super easy, you can choose to automatically send students custom invoices that can be paid by credit card if you make that an option. Automatically email lesson and session reminders, late payment notifications, notes, and so much more. So many amazing features, I can't even list them all here. Every user also receives a free, easy-to-build website template to help market your studio or practice online. Ditch the costly web designer or programmers and have complete control over your website content. With dozens of professional templates available, you'll be sure to find one that best expresses your style. Whether you have 5 or 50 students, Music Teachers Helper works with studios and practices of all sizes. They offer a 30-day, no-risk trial where you can test it out to discover how much time you'll be saving. If you use the link in the show notes or go to www musicteachershelper.com slash podcast, you'll save 20% off your first month if you choose to sign up after the trial. In this episode, I'm chatting with Andrew Knight. Andrew is Assistant Professor of Music Therapy at Colorado State University, having taught at University of North Dakota before that. His clinical work included an internship in behavioral health in Milwaukee and professional work with adults with dementia and Parkinson's disease, children with developmental disabilities, and young children with language impairments. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Rachel. I imagine that your idea for the whole podcast series was looking around at AMTA conferences and noticing which which are the people that that look way more rested than they usually look, and like, oh, those must be the parents because they're in a hotel room without their child at the at the conference. <laughs> yes, unless they brought their child with them. <laughs> unless they brought the child with them, or I think I made a joke with Kimberly once. We're going out to dinner. You know, you go out to dinner with groups of people, and you have this instinct. Can I? Can I cut that up for you? I mean, you can cut up <laughs> mine if you want to fill in that 
that replacement of feeling like a parent again, even though you're at the conference in a way and you don't have to chop up anybody's food. Yes, it's it's strangely freeing being without child and being at conference amongst adults. It's it's exciting. Sure. <laughs> Although I, I have brought my son to conference two years ago. Mm-hmm. And then last year I was flying solo. Then this year I'll be bringing my infant with me. So that will be um, an interesting experience to say the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had that last month. I was at the Canadian Association conference and somebody brought uh, their baby and I was presenting on early childhood music and, and the actual purpose of it was to just run through a whole bunch of songs and it was going to be very interactive. It was not going to be a staid scholarly sit and listen to the research that I would like to tell all of you about. It's not one of those presentations. It was going to be very musical, interactive, and she was very, she really approached me ahead of time. She said, is it okay if I have my baby in the back of the room here? I said, yes, the baby is actually should be probably in the center. You know, we should make the baby the case study on how well all this stuff, (laughs) how, how well all these songs you know, work and how the baby might interact with shakers and eventually it worked just fine. But she was, uh, she was happy to hear that, I think. Oh, so did she end up participating? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She was, like I said, she was way in the back of the room. I said, just come up here. We're all going to be in a circle anyways. Let's just do this and here's some extra egg shakers and you know because they're just going to go in the mouth anyways right well if you have to bring your baby to a conference that's a good type of conference to bring your baby to so absolutely (laughs) awesome awesome well let's talk a little bit about you since that's what this podcast episode is all about and why don't we start with your background and how you came to be a music therapist I was a music performance major at University of Wisconsin La Crosse. I was a percussionist and um, and a jazz emphasis guy, and I was a psych minor. And I I like to tell the story to um, prospective students that are thinking about going into music therapy because they'll come to, here to Colorado State and they'll have one of those tours. And they'll meet with me and uh, they'll say, "So what 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 sort of things do you think I should be?" Um, take what sort of courses and I will mention something about taking a a psychology course uh, if that's something offered by the high school and then I say um, one thing that you can do to ensure that you get really good grades on your psychology papers is write them about music therapy because none of your psychology high school teachers will have any idea what you're talking about so that's what I eventually (laughs) because I was a music performance major but I was obviously Googling around music and psychology and because I wanted to write my psych papers on something I was interested in um, music, obviously, and music therapy popped up. So I started writing all my papers on music therapy. I became a lot more interested in that than I became interested in spending six hours a day sort of figuring out my ring finger muscles on a stick, you know, on a certain stick roll for for a snare drum etude or something and knew that I didn't want to necessarily go ahead and get a master's and, and keep on going the performance route. So eventually uh, it sort of matched up with my interest in psychology and that's how I ended up moving forward. I got an equivalency and my master's degree at University of Minnesota uh, and then became a clinician in 2005 uh, in Milwaukee after I finished my internship at the Milwaukee County Behavioral Health Division. That was inpatient psych. And then I eventually uh, just wanted to stay in the Milwaukee area. I did some interviews and then the interview that I liked the best was uh, a place called Trinity Village that was part of a, a program called Village at Manor Park and it was primarily older adults, uh, dementia, Parkinson's disease, a little bit of hospice uh, in there as well. And I, I've been um, going through a bunch of different clinical positions ever since then. And 
At what point did you decide to make a shift from clinical work to now you mainly do academic work? Is that correct? Yeah. Th- most academic contracts are are really limiting in terms of how much clinical work you do. So you really, I think a lot of academicians, uh, we struggle with trying to figure out how we can reconnect back to our clinical roots. Um, so I think there was a cer- there was just a certain point in time where I realized sort of my work style and um, and how that meshed with uh, where my wife was at and where my family was at. So I, it's uh, in 2006, our first child, our, our son was born. And, um, and I was working, uh, full-time at that place, Trinity village. And I, I remember the day that I had to give my resignation to my boss, who's a very sweet woman, a wonderful clinician. Um, and, and she just kept on looking at the envelope, like, I don't really have to take this, do I? (laughs) Well, it's a, you know, the kid's coming and, um, the child was born, um, my son, Merrick, he was born September, um, 2006. And, um, my wife ended up, uh, she was a music teacher at the time. She got her undergrad in music education. And that's a, that's kind of a rough time to have a kid when you think about the timing of it with the school you're starting. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so it's not that we sat around and thought, what's the time that, when could we have a child to offer you the maximum, you know, break after, <laughs> after the summer or right. anything like that? It was nothing like that. It just so happened. Uh, and I gave her the, the resignation. I told her when I would be done, uh, close to the end of uh, August that year. Uh, it was Labor Day weekend, I remember, and then my wife um, had been uh, diagnosed with preeclampsia, so she had to get off her feet. She couldn't go in, and she had to, she ha- she couldn't even go into work a little bit before my son was actually due, and he ended up being about a month premature. <laughs> he oh, was wow. he was born just after that Labor Day weekend. His birthday is September eighth, uh, and it was just one of those weird things that if I hadn't offered my resignation at that time, you know, if I had, if I had been still working, then I would have been, that would have been really weird because I would have tailed off my work as I was not, as I was able to, had to have stayed home, take care of my wife, and then eventually take care of the, uh, the baby at the same time. So the plan, the plan still worked out okay where I was switching off. I ended up working for a school district. I worked more part-time that year. And then, um, my wife eventually, you know, after her maternity leave went back to uh, teaching music. And, uh, it was that year that I really spent when I was only doing halftime work that I really thought, uh, because at the time I was also finishing my thesis. Uh, and that's when I think the academic bug bit me and I was really getting into research. I really wanted to make a difference. I felt like I, I felt like I had a better understanding of what my strengths as a person and as a clinician were and how I can relate things to other people how I was able to, you know, if I would be able to be somebody who'd, who'd be effective in the front of a classroom and how effective I felt at, uh, or how motivated I felt at continuing doing research, the kind of stuff that you have to do when you're doing a master's thesis. So that's about the time that I really started thinking more about it and uh, started doing all the things you have to do to uh, move forward in academia. And I think my wife and I both also started thinking a little bit more about how we felt about having the baby and about having future babies and what we wanted our division of labor, uh, in terms of inside the house and out of the outside of the house to be. And we both came to an agreement that me being outside of the house and, and, um, being able to do things and from an academic perspective would be good for everybody and her being able to do things more inside the house until she's ready to transition back into work after the babies came, um, 
we figured out that balance in that first year or two of, of his life, really. So your work in academia, did that time-wise, did that allow you to, to be at home with your family more and to be more um, involved in those first couple years of your son's life? Yeah. You know, um, I, I started teaching in August 2008 at University of North Dakota. So he was only two and our daughter had just been born. She was born in June 2008. So we moved uh, a couple month old and um, and an almost two year old um, from Milwaukee to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Oh. <laughs> so uh, it was it was an adventurous time. It, I'm was, sure it, was. it was yeah, it was a little bit bit of a leap, but it was also a place where we found so many people that we that we love and and other uh, families with young kids. And uh, it it's a uh, it's the it's those sort of trials that create really good bonds. I think with those other people that we still care about and still communicate with uh, back in North Dakota. And now we've got our own group here in Colorado too uh, with older kids and families and. You know, I think about it even every week. Here we are in the summertime of 2015, and I get to, I'm, I'm going to coach one of my daughter's t ball teams tonight. I'm going to coach my daughter's basketball game tomorrow night. I've coached, you know, uh, I've, uh, my son in basketball. I don't get to do all that if I'm, you know, necessarily working kind of a, a you know, 8 30 to 5 schedule only because I can't do the four o'clock practice. Or I might just tell myself, ah, that's, it's 40 straight hours, uh, you know, in the week. Do I, can I really spend this much more time now shuttling around the kids now that they're at this age and older? But my academic schedule absolutely allows that because I can budget a lot more time at different parts of the day. I can teach online, which I'm teaching our, through our CSU Online Plus program right now. I can teach that and I can make up the time in other ways. So my, my strengths have to be in my time management uh, only because of my position allowing that to happen. It allows me to figure out where I get to dedicate my time. So I really have a lot of respect for the people that have the, you know, the uh, quote unquote nine to five jobs and they can't step out for more than a half hour, you know, over the lunch break when, like I used to do when I was a clinician. And I can't go home and just help out here or I can't go home and, or, you know, uh, take a kid to t-ball practice when those things are at 10 in the morning in the summer, you know? So uh, I, I think about it all the time about this choice to go into academia and how, how wonderful it's been for our family. Yeah, I, I think about that too with people that are in more traditional um, employed settings. My hours are a little bit um, flexible and they're different because I do work more afternoons and evenings. So I have the opportunity to spend mornings with my kids or, um, you know, do things that people with traditional positions aren't usually able to do. So I do consider myself very lucky in that regard. But, um, you know, I think about down the road when my kids are older and many of the music therapists that I've talked to, when we talk about, you know, having older kids, they always say, oh, you know, you think it's going to get easier, but it actually gets more difficult because then you have all of the activities and the after school things and the extracurriculars and uh, you know they don't lend themselves well to the type of schedule that I have now mm -hmm. so I always kind of think okay well five years down the road what's what is my my um, work schedule going to look like and how am I going to be able to you know kind of tailor that to fit my family so I feel like 
you know, with each season, you kind of have to take into account where your family's at and how you can best structure your work to, to make that fit. Yeah, it can be dangerous too. You know, you have to play. You have to play that five years down the road game because you want to be proactive right. about the possibilities. But at the same time, that doesn't. You know, you can't go too far down that road because you have to have that mindfulness of. But but right now, what's important for for this family right at this moment, and maybe even just this this summer. You know, I can't even think about next summer necessarily, too. Exactly. And, and the, you know, the the difference there is, you know, in academia, you're on this tenure clock and there's um, <clears throat> and there could be that, uh, well, maybe we're going to move. And if we are going to move, when's that going to be? And how many more years is that is that happening? And your contracts are year to year. So at any point that could, you know, that could go away or your position could be cut or something. And for people in other academic positions, like if they're an adjunct uh, professor, they're not they're not on the tenure track or don't have the possibility of having tenure added to their contracts. Um, it's a big issue uh, in academia, broad, you know, broadly, not to mention, you know, music therapy, where we've got such a such a high ratio of females uh, to males. And if those females decide that they want to have a family, they have the that uh, they have that construct on top of the academic uh, constructs that are being talked about throughout higher education and in, in the state where females are at in that uh, as well. So I'm, I'm can be pr- pretty sensitive on both those uh, topics. So women in academia, uh, in music therapy academia, have my full support and and disbelief at, at how they can get it done sometimes. Yeah, those are definitely valid points, and that it has to pose quite a challenge. Mm-hmm. You moved from the clinical realm to working in academia primarily. Do you miss being a clinician? I, I, I missed being a clinician a lot last year. So it was, I was, we were in North Dakota until about um, June last year. It was almost like this exact time, late June, uh, that we were, this was our last week there, and we were about to move here. And that was the that was the point where I was doing all of my last sessions. I'm a music together teacher, so I was a center director, and I was you know you're separating from all of your families that you had in music together world. Um, and then my my clinical work was wrapping up. I had to finish all my research assignments, and all of that is just a, a direct cutoff. And then for a week or two, it's like you're on vacation, and then you keep going, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then you're a month or two into it. And then you're, and then I'm starting things up here, and you're just trying to figure out how to know what you're doing, teaching classes, getting your own research, and all that, going here at at Colorado State. And uh, I, the, the time that I really missed uh, clinical work most in my career was just at conference last year, actually, uh, during our conference in uh, Louisville. That's when you know I was seeing all of all of our colleagues, all of our friends. And everyone was talking about, you know, I've got this one little guy that I'm working with, or I've got this one couple that I'm working with. And they would tell all their client stories. And I didn't have any client stories anymore. <laughs> so I didn't have any ongoing research. I didn't have clients that I was working with at the time. and Because uh, I was just, you know, getting up to speed, back up to speed and starting things over uh, with that. So I think it was just being at conference, hearing everyone's presentations and talking so, uh, you know, caringly about their uh, about the people that they worked with that I was like, oh, that's, that's certainly what I'm missing. So I spent, so I spent the winter break here, you know, searching out and finding some places that I knew that I wanted to cultivate some practicum relationships, you know? So 
it, it wasn't completely altruistic. I would say things like, well, we, we're looking for a, a place that we can put some of our CSU um, practicum students so that they can get you know good opportunities at this psych setting or at this preschool or early childhood center or whatever I was going to uh, do my clinical work at uh, rather than start a private practice or anything. Um, but really, it wasn't altruistic because it was really also for me so that I've got my couple hours a week that I'm still, I'm still responsible. I'm the guy with the badge, you know, going into the facility. I have to be responsible for all the session planning. And, and then, then I can invite students along, you know, and they can take part in it with me. But ultimately, it was also so that I could dig back in. But otherwise, as soon as I got to North Dakota, I was in it right away. I was still doing clinical work. Uh, right away, just not under a, a private practice kind of setting or a contracted setting. It was, it was all the good of working with people without uh, without the the issues of paperwork and um, finances and, and those sorts of things. So it was it was very uh, it was it was another advantage I think of being in an academic setting. I just folded in into what I considered as my academic contract. Yeah, that's basically the ideal situation right there. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Pretending all the hard stuff doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. So you already talked about some of the advantages of your current work situation. Um, what are some of the challenges that come with balancing your schedule now and your professional responsibilities with your responsibilities at home? Well, in as much as it's nice that, um, you know, like I said before, I uh, so last night I'm coaching uh, girl, uh, my girls basketball at four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, in as much as that's nice, it also means that I did have to spend seven thirty to nine thirty or so um, doing Skype calls with you know the online some of the online class uh, students that I have because they are on different time zones uh, across the the uh, uh, across a couple countries across the continent right now. Um, and they also, uh, they are also clinicians, they're working, so they can't Skype with me, you know, nine to five, they're looking for evening times. They're looking for weekend times to get together. So doing that online component can be difficult. Um, so there's no automatic cutoff of, um, when I first started working, I finished at four thirty or five and then I had my commute home and then you just leave it all. Uh, I leave it all at the office and I come home and there's you know, then I've got my three or four hours of dedicated family time. So I think uh, if you really want the, if you want the flexibility um, with the with the family time versus the professional time, uh, student time, uh, working with other colleagues, co-researchers with that time, uh, then you have to be that much more diligent about where those boundaries are going to be. So you can flex the boundaries, but you have to make sure that you know exactly where they're set. Does that make sense how I was sort of listening to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the same is true in private practice as well. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Because it's, you know, the work is never completely done. It's not like you just, you know, leave it at the office and, and walk away. There's always something to be done. And I'm sure, you know, that's the case in your setting as well. So it's just one of those things where you have to like you said, set those boundaries for yourself and and really make yourself put down the work. And I know that's something that I've talked to a lot of the guests on the podcast with is that, you know, you have to make a conscious effort to to have that really focused and dedicated family time as opposed to, well, I just need to finish these emails and do this paperwork or whatever the case may be. 
and kind of try to multitask because that doesn't always work out so well. Yeah, I think you, and this is uh, this is really interesting too, talking about the similarities with private practice, because I was never in private practice. I was I worked for some private practitioners, you know, in the contracts and everything. So I, I only heard vicariously how they did the work that they did and some of the struggles that they had as well. But you know, the, the other part, I think, the other big struggle is almost this is almost a philosophical one. It's because uh, you know, as an academician, uh, you care so much about your students. Um, you really want to be invested in their lives. And I think especially in our profession, you know, I don't mean to, I don't ever mean to cut down other professions when I, when, when I talk to, again, prospective students and I say, don't get frustrated. You're going to have, let's say, 16 credits in the fall, but your 16 credits is going to be like nine or 10 classes because you're going to get one credit for ensembles and one credit for applied lessons. You know how that goes, right? Oh, yeah. And, and if you room with, say, somebody from accounting, and I don't mean I'm going to use accountants at some point and I'm, they're all going to hate me because they're going <laughs> to dig this up and the CPA's union is going to come after me. But if you have an accounting um, student who's your dorm mate, they're going to go to 15 credits and it's going to be five three-credit classes and they're not going to have to wake up before noon on Tuesdays and Thursdays maybe. <laughs> so you can't compare that You can't compare that different kind of mentality. You know, the... the if being a professor in a different field m- might not uh, require, uh, or even not require, but not, might not afford me the opportunity to invest as much as I feel that I should, in, as I do in music therapy, because I feel like the investments that we're putting into students is investments that we're putting into countless other clients, consumers, students, patients that these students are going to encounter that that there's a little bit of you going into these students and then these students are going forward so there's this exponential effect and if if you don't if you're not part of that really important you know planting and nurturing part um then if you're not part of that then i i think i feel like i'm missing an opportunity to be more effective um and i think so the philosophical part, to get back to that, is the idea that these students are really important and you love them and you care about, a lot about them and they have their own lives with a whole lot of baggage of their own and sometimes you're a part of that baggage or sometimes you feel the need to be part of that baggage. But then again, you've got your family and you know there could come a time when your family goes, listen, they're not your family. You know, There could be this pull back and forth with how much are you going to invest in them and how much are you going to invest in us? If you if 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 one of them is is seeing that maybe you're you're getting a little off kilter, you're putting an awful lot of time in, and to be honest, and in the academic um, calendar and the the sort of uh, yin and yang of things, there are really in depth times. There you know there's scholarship audition weeks where we're just in all the time. There's final exam weeks that are just super heavy in terms of what you got to do. But then there's times that hopefully should be easier. The summer should be easier. The winter break should be a little bit easier. Spring break you should be able to dedicate. So having a family that really uh, understands that you're always you know you're always at the core of what this person's thinking of. But there are going to be times that they're going to be pulled away a little bit, um, a little bit more. Um, because they really care about what they're doing. They really care about the students and the people they're working with. Right. I absolutely agree with with that. And I think that the same rings true for me in private practice. It's really in-depth work. And and I feel like people that are in private practice feel like their businesses are 
their child. And I, right. I think we all at some point have referred to, to it that way. I know I have. Yeah, that's another good parallel with private practice and in academia for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So what about self-care? What are some ways that you take care of yourself outside of music therapy, outside of your work and your family? I, I've been doing um, the, the first week, or no, not the first week, the first month we got married. Uh, we came back. I was already, um, I was finishing an internship and starting a job and everything. And I went to a bookstore with my wife and she was in the, it was a Barnes and Noble. She was in the, looking for like a yoga book. I wasn't looking for books or anything. So she's looking at the yoga section and just because I'm next to her, I'm looking around. And the next section over was one, uh, was a section on um, running and, you know, distance stuff, endurance stuff and all that. So I picked up a book that I thought had the ideal title and it's how to how to train for a marathon for non-marathon runners. There's something along those lines. And so I picked it up, I bought it, and I ran a marathon. Um, and I caught the running bug, and I I really started, um, I really started enjoying having that time to process through things for myself. And so that's something that I've kept on doing, and that's something that I work with um, Michelle Kenimer, who's in te- Texas in the uh, southwestern region. And she and I, for the last three or four years, have been trying to recruit. Um, music therapists, because we are, we're fi- we found that there are a lot of music therapists who have this very same self-care, <laughs> that it's not just going for a, you know, cardio kickboxing class for an hour, but it's, it's, it's uh, also a little bit of this, um, the type of fitness that is physical, you know, steady state, aerobic, running just around, away from people, uh, and then also mental fitness at the same time. So we're finding a lot of music therapists seem to have a very similar sense of uh, self-care. So uh, we've we have this little group of what we call fronters, the friends and runners, and um, people that we also do fundraising for the American Music Therapy Association. So it serves a lot of purpose because it's it's at its core it's our self-care, but it also connects us to music therapists in a new way. It's ways to um, it's ways for us to gather and collect our thoughts and everything. Um, and you know, out, so outside of outside of running, working out generally. Um, then also working on um, another way for mental fitness is little bits of meditation uh, from time to time. I think the more podcasts I hear from other people, the more I hear about meditation coming up, whether that's like a super in-depth um, people who are into transcendental meditation uh, or if it's just they're trying their own practice of five minutes twice a day or whatever it is and trying to move forward and um, little things like that. Uh, in terms of how they're defining their own meditation. I think those are the two uh, bits of self-care for me outside of more traditional self-care, which is therapy, you know, getting my own uh, therapy, which is another transition when you move again. So that's something else that I've been transitioning back into, um, you know, finding that therapist that you can connect with and that you can, um, you can talk about all these issues from a, from a personal perspective instead of, instead of a therapist perspective, instead of uh, trying to diagram it all myself. And I like actually right. talking about that with students too, because the more that I can share with them that I'm getting my own therapy, then I can help destigmatize it and make sure that they're all looking at it and saying, well, you're going to be a music therapist too. You're in a helping profession. You should get, be getting your own, uh, you should be getting your own self-care, your own therapy. And guess what, everybody, you already paid tuition. So it's free here on <laughs> campus. So hike on over to the, to the, uh, counseling center and, and, uh, make an appointment. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Therapy for the therapist. I like yeah. that. Um, what about spending time with your family? Now, you have – do you have three kids or four kids? Yep, we've got three kids. So three we've kids. Got, uh, okay. I've got an eight-year-old, eight-and-a-half-year-old boy, a seven-year-old girl, and a four-year-old girl. Oh, nope, five-year-old girl. Oh. Wait a minute. Mm, nope, five-year-old girl. Sorry. <laughs> I flipped which one just had the birthday. Eight, seven, and five. And um, so uh, what was the question? It was it was about uh, things that we do. Yeah, we do how you time. spend your time with them. Yeah, so – I um, I mentioned the coaching thing. I don't. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't give myself credit for saying like, "Well, I'm volunteer coaching here, so that's 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 my concession for getting them involved." I I, I think I think there's something that that if we you know even if we just presented it without me being involved, but I was I was super involved in athletics growing up anyways. So. And I've worked, and I work with these kids, and I work with kids with special needs in this age range, anyways. So I feel like most parents of the of the kids for the teams that I'm coaching, I feel like they see me interact with the kids, and they think, "Well, he must he he must know what he's doing," <laughs> or or they you know because I introduce and I say I'm a faculty member in music therapy, and I'm I like that the I I like the idea that maybe they just Googled me then and they were <laughs> checking out my bio on the CSU website. Like, how legit is this guy? What's music therapy? So I like the idea that it's a little bit of advocacy, but it's also a time uh, for them, for my kids to see me interacting with other kids and they can see, they can compare how I interact with them compared to the other kids. Uh, and it's also a chance for them to make a lot more friends uh, outside of the, you know, their traditional school setting too. So I think... Um, I think athletic stuff, riding bikes together, and I like when they come to my races and cheer me on and they see all the other um, athletes, they see people being healthy, eating healthy food, and you know all those sorts of things. So I think um, doing all those things together with the family is really important. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, and your self-care practices are setting such a great example for your kids. Like, yeah, and at some point they're going to be old enough where they're going to go, "Dad, what's going on? Did you not meditate today?" Or they're going to be <laughs> they're going to be tuned in like we're, to the point where my wife is, where she's going to go, "Do you need to ride the bike today or do you need to do you need to go for a run? What's going on?" Exactly. They'll be they'll, yeah, once they start tuning in, that's when you know. That, <laughs> that's, that's when you know, "Okay, other people are watching out for me. They understand what's going on right now." Yeah, yeah. Well, what advice would you give to other music therapists who maybe are interested in, in pursuing academia or are interested in starting a family or other men who are music therapists? It could be any of the above. You know, what I think your theme here, um, the idea of uh, talking to, to uh, the, the other gentlemen that have joined you for this particular podcast series with the men of, of going, of saying, what do the men have to say about it? What's, what's really going on? I think, I think some of the themes that I'm hearing are, um, that we are benefit, we are benefited by being in our profession, uh, of lots of women. You know, we, it's not, <clears throat> it's not that, um, you know, when people bring up the gender disparity in our profession, I don't, I don't, instantly go, you're right. How do we get to 50-50? How do we balance this thing out? <laughs> I, I don't think that. I think, oh, that, that's where we're at. And um, we've, uh, in some cases, we've selected ourselves that we know that we benefit from being around uh, some very strong, very independent-minded women who are running things really well. Um, and um, so my advice for 
people interested in academia is, is to find some uh, find some mentors, make sure several of them are female so that you can do a lot of listening to them in terms of what they've been going through so you can realize that maybe what you're going through probably isn't <laughs> nearly as difficult as some of the different decisions uh, that I was mentioning earlier that they've had to make or consider. Um, like I said, it's a really big issue um, in academia um, from from single women all the way through uh, people who are about to, you know, uh, people who are retiring and that sort of thing. Uh, women in higher up positions, administration positions and everything, just across the board. And I'm really proud to be at a university where the president has a very specific uh, uh, goal and strategic plan for uh, for uh, gender equality in the workplace here. So I really appreciate that. The The part about the family, I think, again, you know, it's, it's never failed that when I'm not sure about s some decision that we have to make in our family that I can't go to uh, that I can't default to the research and the thinking that my wife has done on the position. And um, she's she can be like my Google Scholar. You know, if I need to do a research project here for my academic position, I can go to Google Scholar for a little startup or I can learn to go to databases. But um, I trust her as my, as my database for the information and where the information is coming from. So um, I like that I can, she's sort of how my research brain gears up to make, to, to be part of the decision making process for our family too. So, um, trusting your, trusting your partner and, and, uh, and getting insight from, from people who have, uh, gone that route before you, I think is the best way to go. Um, so all I should be doing is doing a lot more listening and really finding out, um, what different decisions people have made and, and how I can square that away with uh, where my life is at right now. Yeah, I, I think that's all excellent advice. And um, I, <laughs> I was thinking as you were saying that you defer to your wife as the, the one that has done the research and is a good place to start. I was thinking probably other wives wish that their husbands agreed with that in yeah, certain instances. Yeah, if if watching any number of sitcoms is any sort of judge, <laughs> it seems like we're all crazy. But but yeah. I promise you, we're not all crazy. And no, I'm no. Sure, sure. More people would. I'm sure more uh, uh, guys, especially, <laughs> would would pref would, uh, would not have a problem with it if they really, uh, you know, started thinking about uh, tallying up all the decisions that I've been making and the times that I come back in my life to thinking especially now with the kids in this sort of middle single digit range between five and eight, especially now thinking back on the decisions that we made when they were one, two, three, um, or even when they were very tiny or, or just before they were born, the decisions that, that we ended up making were the decisions that were informed almost entirely by really good information that my wife was getting and being very thoughtful, even though I was maybe deferring to some sort of default setting or I wasn't, or I was, uh, wasn't digging into a certain, book or resource the right way. And so looking back on it, I really appreciate, um, I, I like the decisions that we made because I'm happy with where we're at right now. And so it just helps me reinforce that listening back then was a good idea. So listening right now is probably a good idea for their future. Yeah. That's a perfect way to look at it. Love that. <laughs> mm. Do you have any music therapy related projects or news that you'd like to share? Um, you know, for music, I, I've I've enjoyed hearing 
some of your other guests talk about their music therapy projects. It seems like in academia, we don't really have too many music therapy projects. We just end up doing, <laughs> we're just working, you know, it's just, I've got another class coming up. Is that interesting? Or I've got another research pro project, but I won't tell you about it until it becomes published, if I can get it published, <laughs> you know, but so it's not really too exciting from that standpoint. But in the summertime, I mentioned the thing with um, the uh, fundraising efforts with, with um, Michelle Kenimer. Yeah, and talk with a some more about that. Of, yeah, and with a whole bunch of other music therapists. So, <clears throat> so this is something that I think is really important. Um, when we have uh, when we have association wide discussions, so not talking about necessarily the profession of music therapy, but maybe a little bit more about the direction of our association, especially here in the states. Um, and we talk about what we want to do and. Um, I find that when people are tempted to say things like AMTA should this, or I wish AMTA would that, I, there's a big part of me that just reminds myself to say, I am AMTA, I can do this, or we need more money for this. Okay, well, I am part of AMTA, I should go help them get some more money. Or I am part of AMTA, here's how I should be helping with this decision or serving on this board or committee or something. And I think that's... Uh, I think that's something I'd encourage every, everyone to do, uh, everyone to consider doing if their situation allows for that. The thing that we're doing with the fundraising is essentially anybody who's interested, um, we kind of do it the way that a lot of other organizations do it. So people who are familiar with Race for a Cure or if they're familiar with um, like the team and training for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, it's, it's the idea that you're putting yourself through something really difficult. You're going to train for a triathlon or a marathon or a, if it's a 5K or whatever the event might be. You're gonna you're gonna have a set event date in mind sometime in maybe September or October, and then over that period of time, you keep telling family and friends about it, and you say, "I'm doing this because I really think music therapy is important." And it gives you a chance to advocate for our profession, uh, explain what the association does, and talk a little bit about what you do and how how clients really affect you uh, for, on a day to day basis. So that um, you know, if you're gonna go to your July Fourth party in a little in in a couple weeks, and you're gonna have the uncle that's like, "So what are you doing again?" Did you graduate? What, what's the job again? And they're asking those sorts of questions that you, <laughs> they, they've been asking a, a good period of time. This is a way that you can, well, I, I do music therapy. I work with these kids and I'm, I'm trying to raise money. So if anyone's interested, I'm raising money for the American Music Therapy Association. They support me by generating the research and the journals and they give me discounts on blah, blah, blah. And you can go down a list, litany of benefits and all that about how AMTA supports the work that you do with your clients. Um, and then you can, but you can also frame it in a discussion that maybe makes a little bit more sense to them. For instance, in an, in a, in an endurance event, say, oh, I'm, I'm really working hard. I'm going to try to do this triathlon coming up. And uh, so if you want to donate to it, to it uh, then you're supporting me, but you're also supporting AMTA. So there's a group of us that are doing that. We all have uh, websites at a place called firstgiving.com. So you go to firstgiving.com, you type in American Music Therapy Association, and then it'll show you a list of all the people. Uh, all the music therapy uh, members who are doing an event at different times of the year. You can go on any time, then you can find somebody that you know, you can donate to their particular event. Uh, usually they have a little uh, biography of here's the event that I'm doing, here's why I'm doing it, here's why music therapy is important to me. We all wear shirts that say music therapy, or have the AMTA logo on them when we do our events. Um, and uh, ultimately we've raised, uh, I think, somewhere close between fourteen dollars and $15,000 over the last uh, three or four years. Wow. Yeah, for AMTA doing these different events. But it's not just running. There's people that are like, oh, I don't run. It's, and it's true. It, um, 
Whitney Osterkamp did a wonderful event where she did a bake-off. So anybody who uh, donated, she would bake them something and send it to them. Uh, or I think it was something where she invited them to their house, too. Meryl Brown, I think, pot on one of your uh, earliest podcasts, she did. She was our leader last year, as a matter of fact. Or maybe it was two years ago. She did a Barnes & Noble book sale. She went to a restaurant to get 10% off tabs. Everything went to AMTA. It's just So it's a big advocacy event um, that we do that we really gear up here in the summers and we're really trying to raise uh, $10,000 uh, just about um, hopefully by the time uh, the, f the fall conference rolls around for us um, in Kansas City this year so we can announce that. But anybody who's, who does that sort of self-care and wants to be involved, anyone who wants to raise money for AMTA, there's lots of support and just send me an email. We'll get you involved in a little secret Facebook site that we have. We have lots of fun talking about music therapy and, and running or biking or um, athletics of some kind. And then we can also support people who are doing fundraising efforts for that as well. I'm so glad that you mentioned this because I, I was under the impression that it was just athletic events. And so that's nice to know that for those of us that aren't as athletically inclined, that there are yeah. other options. So, you know, most people like if you just say, if you just tell somebody, well, I'm going to run a marathon, you don't get money just for running a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you know, people don't donate because they're like, wow, you're really putting yourself through a lot of pain. Here, right. I'll give you 20 bucks. It's not even that. It's, you know, there, the, the event is almost... Uh, what we tell people is maybe like five to ten percent of the donations that you get. If you want to raise a thousand dollars, people will people will donate. If you, like I said, you do the book sale, you do the the bake sale at work, you do the you uh, donate garage sale proceeds, you um, go to the restaurant and have them do the ten percent thing. You you do the every month you send out an email blast to all your friends and family, and maybe you get another fifteen twenty percent of your. Um, your donations from there too. So just by doing something isn't there, but the doing something part of it sort of sends, sets a, a deadline for you, sort of like an end date. And for whatever reason, there's like some sort of donor psychology that that helps people go, all right, September 1st, Rachel's been emailing me enough about this 5K <laughs> she wants to do. I guess I'll finally just do it and get to that last push to get her over, uh, you know, someplace, you know. So that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll put a link also on the um, show notes page of how people can find that website and get a hold of you. I appreciate that. Yeah, Thanks. absolutely. Um, one last question for you, and that is, do you have any favorite products, books, or resources that are either related to music therapy or parenthood in general? You know, my shameless plug has always been music together. I like they've got a they've got a book that anybody can buy called Family Favorites. I like it because. Um, I like the musicianship of it. It comes with a CD. It's just our kids know all the music together songs, and I taught music together for a number of years. Um, I like. I, I think anybody who's investing in their children should be investing in in that sort of thing. They should be investing in in the collection that you that you've been putting out lately. Your curriculum. Um, Any time that you're investing in uh, in kids in early childhood and music, I think is really really important. So. Um, you know, the idea that our music therapist lives overlap our lives of being parents, I think that's a really important thing. So, you know, we don't want to get in this, I don't think we'd want to get in this habit of, um, you know, they're going to hear music enough with my wife and I playing all the time, so they don't have to go to a music class or something. But they, they really should. They should have, they should see music as a social, uh, music-making 
altogether kind of experience and getting them involved in those sorts of classes, I think, is really important. So people that can just check out their local things. And to be honest, I tell students as well, music therapists are uniquely suited to do these sorts of groups. I think we've got the musical skills. We have the developmental training uh, and everything. So all the things that you're doing, the CMTs you offer, the curriculum and everything, uh, and the stuff that I'm doing with music together, I think is really important so that music therapists are acknowledging that early childhood is a big untapped area that just because kids don't have a diagnosis doesn't mean we can't uh, or we shouldn't necessarily work with them or market to them or anything too. So I think that's a really great area for um, people who are, you know, probably more attracted to this podcast to to reconsider. Yeah, I 100% agree with you, obviously. Mm. Um, but honestly, that's been one of my greatest joys since becoming a parent. Um, not just, you know, really being able to dig into the early childhood work, because I've loved that since long before I even thought about, you know, getting married, but attending those music classes with my child and not just the classes that I teach, but also those that are offered in my community. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew, so much for being on the podcast and sharing your unique perspective as a music therapist dad. Thanks for getting all the podcasts together. It's a really interesting uh, series and best to, to you and, and the new edition, Mia, and everybody else in the family. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to send Andrew a message, you can contact him via email, ajknightmtbc at gmail.com or Twitter at nightmtbc. Would you like to be a guest on the show? Let me know. Get in touch and find the show notes for this episode at guitarsandgranolabars.com. And if you feel so inclined, please leave a review on iTunes. I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.